Hello. Welcome to Landmaforms Radio, a podcast where I interview musicians and artists about their latest projects. My name is Ian Corey, and I am the songwriter in the band Landmaforms. I love learning about an artist's process, their intentions, and who they are as people. Today I am joined by Zayn Allen, who releases music under the name Humesha. I first came across Humesha when a mutual friend told me Zayn was looking for a drummer for the live version of the band. I was immediately taken with his sound, which mixes Hindustani music with sample-based hip-hop techniques and dream pop and shoegaze guitar playing. There isn't another band on earth that sounds like Humesha as far as I know, which isn't something that I can say about many artists. I've also found Zane to be a very thoughtful guy, so I was delighted to have him on to talk about his musical background, his year spent in India collecting material that ended up on the first Humesha record, and the way that his work interacts with both art and anthropology. Thank you for listening. It's funny because I've played your music for a while now, not in a while, but mm-hmm. in the grand scheme of things for, you know, I guess over a year I've mm-hmm. been part of the band, but I don't know a ton about your pre-Humesha musicianship. So I'd love to kind of talk over how you first started playing music and the path that got you to basically where you are now. So how old were you when you, uh, when you first started playing? In like a formal sense, I started playing, I got piano lessons in middle school. I didn't stick with them for very long. Like I got the music theory stuff down, figured out, you know, how to play chords, how to play melodies. And then I remember when I started bringing Final Fantasy piano, like sheet music to lessons for my teacher to teach me how to play she was like kind of offended and like not really interested <laughs> in teaching me. And I was like, this is what I want to learn how to play on piano right now. And she was like, yeah, we're not going to do that. And I think it was shortly after that. I was like, cool. I'm not going to do this anymore. What is this like too Xanarkand or what, what were you bringing in at that time? I mean, yes, definitely Final Fantasy 10 because we are of the same age group that like, that was one of like the first ones that we got deeply into. Um, but just in general, like video game music at that time, like I was really, really into took a break from it occasionally still, you know, pitter-pattered on the piano, but, like, kind of put it on pause for a second. And then I think early high school really was somehow able to, like, make the arc from video game music to um, Mm post-rock. And that was also actually parallel to, like, so that was, like, my internal self, which was into that kind of music, which I didn't really share with the rest of the world or, like, have in common with friends who were not on the internet, but the other outer self was like very mirrored the place that I grew up in. So I was listening to like a lot of Southern hip hop, a lot of like Gucci Mane, a lot of like, you know, some of the more mainstream, like Nelly, even the old ones, like three, six mafia. Mm -hmm. Like that was like kind of my outer self. And then the inner self was like, post-rock and video game music and <laughs> working my way backwards from post-rock through history got to Loveless and Cocktail Twins and spent all my savings on the Jazzmaster 
that you still see me play to this day. So you settled pretty quickly on that guitar then. I know I noticed in a lot of your interviews, you bring up the specific guitar that you use. So it seems like you had an interest in not just playing the instrument, but playing like that exact instrument. Yes. Yes. Why was that? Because I wasn't really like captured by, I mean, I was like, I loved the sound of a guitar doing like, you know, vocal melody that it would do in like post-rock or like the place of a vocal melody, but I wasn't like totally captured by it or like by its like textural possibilities until Mm -hmm. I heard Loveless. And that's when I was like, okay, I'm going to get this guitar. What do you think about Loveless? Like, cause obviously it's a seminal record, but I'm curious about like what, like what part of the sound of it stuck out to you? Like, why did you gravitate towards that kind of textural guitar playing? The, I mean, obviously there's a lot of this had to do with effects too, but I mm-hmm. think the, the, the wooziness and the ability to like kind of bend between notes, but in a way that's like different from a typical whammy bar that has this kind of like this shimmering sound to it almost mm-hmm. was what I like was like immediately captured by. And I, I'll spoil the story if I fast forward for too long, but part of like, I think why that moment was so important was I've always been attracted to melodies that kind of have that sense of gliding sense of kind of like breaking scale sense of not sticking to like a strict sense of tone because the sense of melody that I was like always trying to kind of find my way back to was like the Raga sense of melody from Hindustani music. Mm-hmm. So, you know, Kowali, Bollywood that I grew up with, the, that sense of, of, of melodies that rise and fall in a different way was something that I was very, very interested in and captured by, especially the way that like voices act in, in Hindustani music. And I'm piecing again, this is like all in retrospect, but like kind of, I think the reason I was attracted to the sound from the beginning was that it was like the first possibility of getting to voice that sense of melody through an instrument that is like otherwise thought of as Western Mm -hmm. that I was like more familiar with in a like American youth sense. And so did you immediately start like playing in bands or what was the early guitar playing like for you? In some ways, it's very similar to what I do now, which is bought a delay pedal, bought a loop pedal, recorded a lot of demos alone. Mm -hmm. Um, Just because, again, there was like a sense of like outer music with the world and inner music with myself. And the music that I was playing on guitar was very much inner music through high school. So I wasn't really in bands in high school. didn't really jam or play with anyone. That did not begin until I got to college when I found other ambient post-punk shoegazer kids so so were you like aware of any sort of like diy or independent music happening around you at the time or was that just something that you weren't in georgia yeah yeah i mean like again like one of my, one of my high school greats deer hunter from atlanta georgia actually from marietta and kennesaw but based in atlanta i was very aware of them but atlanta at that time was also quite it was like very intensely a 21 plus music scene. Mm-hmm. Um, so like I didn't really have an engagement with it. It was very much something that was like at a distance, even though very close and accessible, but something I really did look up to. Right. So that's the interesting thing about the sort of like inner life, outer life split that you're defining. It's like now it seems like you've kind of gotten to this point where 
the inner life music has melded with the outer life music in your life to some extent. Mm-hmm. And so I'm, I'm curious about like the differences between that and your situation earlier on. Like, did you show your demos to anyone or was it like purely private for you? Like when I was back in high school? Yeah. Definitely private. Just me occasionally like brother or mom would hear overhear them and be like, Oh, that's really cool. That's really pretty. You should do something with that, but nothing beyond that. And that was by intention, like you didn't have any plans to release music. It wasn't just like a private practice. Yeah, at that time, I don't, I don't think I knew what it meant to, to make it public because there wasn't really anybody else doing that at the time or there wasn't, at least in my specific suburb of Kennesaw, there wasn't much of like an audience for it. Mm-hmm. But yeah, you know, if I was like had been a few years older and was able to like play at some of those shows in Atlanta, I'm sure it might have been very different. I mean, the moment I could, like with the shows that were like 18 plus and the moment I was 18, senior year, I was going to all of those. What kind of stuff were you seeing at that time? Um, like I remember one of the shows I saw that's like pretty shocking to remember now is um, at Variety Playhouse, I saw Jay Retard open for Deer Hunter. And this was like a few years before he passed away. Um, like didn't realize until later on, like how amazing of a show that was. Actually, no. The opening act for that show was, do you know Pylon? With a Y? Yes. It's, it definitely rings a bell, but I, I don't recall what they sound like offhand. And they were like an OG post-punk Athens, Georgia uh-huh. band. Uh-huh. Like that were probably like, I think, adjacent to like B-52s and probably kind of like predated R.E.M. Um, but they were like fully in their like 60s, 70s and just jamming opening for Deer Hunter and Jay Retard. And I was like, this is a really beautiful Georgia post-punk, Georgia like outsider music narrative. And then I guess like Jay Retard also from Tennessee, part of the South as well, narrative that I'm getting to experience as a high schooler. And so when you got to college and you started meeting other people that were into some of the same music, did you actually actively like seek out people that were interested in the same kind of music that you were looking to make or how did that come about um you know, i mean it was just it was it was a small enough place that really loves music because it's right in between new york city and boston like literally on the highway mm-hmm. that like it wasn't hard to find people who were into into making music so it was pretty quick that people were like you want to be my band you can be my band don't really care about skill level don't really care about what you've done before everybody just wants to be in bands and so what kind of stuff were you playing at that time that time it was, it was still kind of in that like post-punk shoegazy world. It's funny, the one, the one like project I had was like we called ourselves a punk band, but like on record, it sounded a little bit more like a noisy slow dive, but on stage, it was more like, I don't know, something like the Black Lips, like very loud, very aggressive, very performative, mm-hmm. not really like trying to like give you some kind of like a, perfectly executed show like you're here to have fun so even then it doesn't seem like you were interested or looking to be like a musician full time is that a fair assessment yeah so what were you looking to do with your life at that point instead didn't totally know (laughs) um (laughs) kind of thought maybe i was going to become an academic and then that's why i went to south asia after graduating on a fellowship for a year to begin making music But I think, again, like getting to be like very alone, very inward, very just kind of sitting with my thoughts, sitting with these sounds, sitting with 
these demos and, and ideas that I've been working on alone for a long time, that's kind of where I began to birth the idea of, oh, okay, maybe this is like a thing that could be real or is a project that I want to take a little bit further. What interested you about being an academic? Like, why did you think you gravitated towards that? I have always been very interested in the history of South Asia, and particularly India and Pakistan since it split up. My grandparents are, my, all my family is originally from India. Half of them in 1947 left and went from Pakistan and the other half stayed. And like when I was a child and I heard the story narrated by my grandfather of them choosing whether or not to stay or to go, that was like, that kind of left like a permanent imprint on my mind. And the question of like, what is it actually that makes decide somebody decide to stay or to go in moments of like extreme fracture, the independence of the subcontinent from the British empire, what made them decide to say what made them decide to go. And, um, how through those stories can you kind of try to understand a lot of what has happened in the modern world since and a lot of what has happened to Muslims or, you know, minorities in general, but Muslims in particular who are a large minority, but still a minority in India. Like how, how does that moment kind of answer a lot of what afflicts us these, in, in these times? That's kind of what I thought I was going to do as an academic. If that's, I think, I think if, that, if that's a good enough answer. Yeah, no, it, it seems like it's a, like a personal, I don't know, this sounds corny to say, but it seems like you were on like a, a quest of some kind. Like you, mm -hmm. you were looking for answers to a very personal and intimate question about your own life, like how you, because any story of like of your family, it ultimately like it's, it's kind of determining like, how did I get here too, to some extent, not to make it solely about the self, but mm -hmm. it, it seems like it starts there for you to some extent. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. How soon after college did you, uh, did you go to Asia? Immediately after. Yeah. Yeah. This is this, this, I like apply for a couple of weird internships and this, this fellowship that would take me there for one year and I ended up getting it, um, worked with an archive there as an old historian, which was kind of perfect because that meant I was spending most of my days talking to people about this moment in time and this question, recording them recording the sound of their homes, recording the sound of their neighborhoods, recording the sound of sometimes them breaking down and getting like really emotional. Mm -hmm. And um, I think if you listen to the first record, the debut LP 2015, you can hear a lot of that world come through as part of like me making sense of working through that earlier question I just gave you in a sonic way. Mm -hmm. So both like there's like a musical element to which I'm working at that question as well as like a more narrative component that I was working through it every single time I talked to one of these survivors of the partition. And in the end, I talked to about 150. So there's a, there a lot of stories, a lot of sounds, a lot of material in general to work through for, for that record. How long of a period of time were you collecting all of that material? One year. One year? Yeah. Were, had you ever visited prior to that or was this your first time? I had visited once the summer before and that summer before was actually to do research for my undergraduate thesis, which was basically like a smaller version of this project. So I was there for like one month, mm -hmm. three weeks in India, one week in Pakistan. And um, that was my first time having gone to India. 
I had been to Pakistan once before for a wedding, but that was it. And that like really whet my appetite to where I was like, I've got to find a way to come back. What was it like being just on a personal level, being there for a year? Because that seems like a, a pretty big jump in terms of a time frame, and also just you know right out of college. And it, it sounds like you you put yourself through a lot very quickly. I did. I mean, at the beginning, I think my parents were kind of like shocked. I think a lot of my Pakistani family was just like, "Oh my God, why would you go to India for a year? Like they're the enemy. They don't love Muslims. Like you shouldn't do that. You're going backwards." But I more so was just kind of like, I know. Like I haven't started a job or a career. This is like the best time to go and just do something like this without any any responsibilities or anything constraining me or holding me back. And I just like really felt at that time like a fire to go back and do this project on a bigger level rather than just in the span of like one month in the summer. And you know, when I was there towards the ending, there were many moments, like even up and almost until the end where I was wondering if I should stay for another year. What was making you uh, balance that possibility? Um, just that I think once you start to stay in a place that long, particularly a place in which you do know the language, which I did just having grown up with it, like you start to set roots down there. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, classic post-college thing, like all my friends after graduating had moved to New York. And I did feel like a real sense of FOMO that like, they're all like, you know, like putting down roots here and having their formative moments post college and, and, and post-graduation that I'm missing out on. And I also had at that point, like 40, 50 minutes of music in like very demo, very unmixed um, form. Cause at that point I was a total novice at recording and mixing, but did kind of have like an inkling of, of a desire to maybe like go back and sit down with my friends who like I played in bands with for four years in school and show them this stuff and see if we can make something of it. When did it transition from being like an academic project to a musical one, or do you even see those two things as being distinct? I don't think I really saw those things as distinct at that time. I think when I was like working on mixing and like re-recording part of the record here in New York, after I came back, it did feel a little bit more like, okay, we're doing like a musical thing. And like, I've never been in a really, really, high fidelity studio and we're doing it and I'm learning as I go along and this is amazing. So maybe I, I would say that was like end of 2014, beginning of 2015 at that time when I felt like that switch had happened. And what was the process like from making it into an actual like commercially available album? Like it seems like there's this interesting balance between trying to like write songs and also tell this story essentially through music and that's something that I, I think has changed over the course of all of the music that you've released is it seems to be edging more and more towards the writing songs part of it mm-hmm. so did you sort of feel like you had to like catch up on how to do that part in once it became like a studio project I think a little bit just because again like when I was doing it and in India by myself, like I was also just like teaching myself how to use Ableton, like the mm-hmm. very, very rudimentary elements, just enough to be able to, to, to make your own music. Yeah, it's interesting that you ask that question. I think if you like these are not as commercially available, but I have in that in the time since the first record done a lot more video projects, art installations, 
just kind of little little one-offs with residency programs and fellowships and archives that have let me go almost deeper in the direction of the narrative historical sense of making sounds, whereas Hamesha has become a little bit deepened as a vehicle for making songs. Mm-hmm. Um, I still don't think I ever see them as like totally distinct because like you can clearly hear where one influences the other. But yeah, it's interesting that you bring that up because I haven't really thought about how those, I think like those two things, they almost kind of felt like they were packed into like a single seed in the 2015 debut. And in the time since then have kind of like grown, developed, branched off, and perhaps still are like centered into the same root, root set of roots, but like have branched off kind of like this. And so after the record came out, how quickly did you start playing live and how did the live version of the band interact with that same, because it's coming out from the same roots. So how did you work on that branch of the tree? Yeah, that, I think like the record came out in the summer and then the first show was like in January or February of the next year. And I remember like I was bummed that when the record came out that summer, there was like a kind of big agency in the UK that was like, this is amazing. What does the live show look like? There's definitely a huge audience for this in the UK, just like given how long, you know, South Asian culture and the Indian diaspora have been a part of the UK. Um, And at that time I was just like, man, I have never sang live. I have not thought at all about how to make this project work with a band, but this is probably a good excuse to start. It it makes all, all just to say, it makes me wish I had like thought about the question five months before the record came out rather than when the record came out so I could then play a show five months later. Right. So what was that process like for you to learn how to perform live with that, uh, with that band? Yeah, it kind of was um, almost building some of the songs like back from like just the earliest stems that I had for a lot of these songs. Because again, the, the first record was like just me, just Dylan mixing and producing, helping with that instrumentation. So like going back to those stems, figuring out what can be translated to real drums? What can be translated to real guitar, even though it's like another string instrument on the record? What can be used as a sample? What can be just triggered as a loop? And that was a long process of trial and error, which is why it took, you know, the four or five months to make it work. And during that span, were you also working on new material or were you just focused purely on the self-titled record? I was definitely working on new material at that time, but the primary focus was definitely like getting to play this live. So the, the live band picks up at that point. Mm-hmm. D- did you consider touring or were you just playing locally? Obviously if there's interest coming from the UK, then there's a sense that you can do more than just play in Brooklyn. We did. We played, um, I think um, we did. We were primarily just playing regionally at that time, um, you know, like as far up as the Northeast or as far south as like Philly. But I ended up getting into grad school that year, which took me to Boston. Mm-hmm. And then my guitarist, who also had mixed and produced the first record, got a job offer to go to Los Angeles 
So then the project took a little bit of a transition into having both kind of like a solo life with me doing it stripped down a little bit and then also having a life with the band in New York, but kind of having a little bit of a rotating door of like guitarist or bassist and basically us going back and forth between Boston and New York to make, to make the distance work. And when did the, the departures EP come about? So that was, that ended up taking again, just because I was not in New York it ended up taking like a lot longer to schedule sessions, schedule time with the band, get it mixed, get it mixed again. And it ended up coming out in 2018. And so what changed in terms of your process from first record to then? I mean, the first record was made alone. The second record was made having played with a band. Mm-hmm. So the second record was really a like, I would almost say like a transitional record in which it was like, what does it mean to try and pinch and pull and push the sound of this project with a band in the room? Did you find it difficult to let other people into the process in that way? Or are, were you like looking to have more outside collaboration? I think at that point, like the shows had gone so well, the band had kind of like found that gel, you know, that happens after a few months of playing together that I was really, really excited to, to bring a bunch of like, you know, demos, ideas to the band and be like, okay, now that we've all kind of figured out what each person's place is in realizing this somewhat specific sound, let's try and do it like a little bit more at a formative stage rather than like looking at a song that's finished and then reinterpreting that backwards a little bit um so i really enjoyed it i really loved the experience i think after that because i was still in boston i realized there's so much trial and error and so much time taken to do this when we're in two different cities that i will like pull back on this a little bit but i also feel like i even now have a better sense on my own of how real life instrumentation real life instrumentation replicating what samples once did in the sound and then samples doing what instruments do in a little bit more of like an intentional on the grid looped way can benefit the sound so we're almost like kind of like in a sense like deepening each part of the sound of this project and kind of like making them bend and break so that at a certain sense you kind of don't know which one is doing what (laughs) I'm curious about like what those early shows were like, like what other types of bands you were playing with and what, cause like in the experience that I've had playing live with you, it seems like you've found like a very loyal and very receptive audience that doesn't necessarily, it's not, you're not just playing to like the indie rock audience, quote unquote. Is that, is, is that fair to say? I mean, I would say we have them, but we also have, Another set of folks who are just like more, who are like, to some extent, like taken by it as almost like a experience, mm-hmm. who are in love with the videos, who want to like talk about the videos, who want to talk about the outfits, who like a lot of the cultural references that are in the music. And that's always like a reception I'd love to have because to me, in many ways, part of like what makes 
this project, but also music in general really beautiful is how much it can be a vehicle for feelings that are foreign to us or sensibilities that are not available to us in everyday experience. And um, if any part of the live experience, whether it's the videos, um, whether it's the me singing in Hindi or Urdu or something that we're doing with the samples is able to impart that onto someone, I feel like it's really doing its job well. But there was, did you ever run into any sort of, just because I'm, I'm curious, like what happens when you first start doing that? Did it take a while to find the right audience that was receptive or was interested in that? Or did it come pretty quickly? I think it took a while. Um, I think there were definitely some bills where we were just with like bands that do like a very traditional, very like, not, not at all disparaging, but like they do this sound from the 80s Glasgow phenomenally. Mm -hmm. Like that is what they do. But sometimes with some of those shows, obviously like our fans would come and they would leave immediately after. There were other shows where, so like a show like that one, we might've had like a lot of sonic affinities with that Glasgow sounding band. There's other shows we played where we'd be the only band with guitars on the bill. And like, there might be like a hip hop act on the bill and people are like really into it. Mm -hmm. But initially sometimes when we do those would be like, I don't know if that was weird or cool because I don't know if there was like a sonic congruence between any of these bands but people all people seem to like the whole thing and and we had both of those <laughs> yeah it seems like you're very you come across as very confident in the material that you're performing but also in that people will get what you're getting at which i think could either come from sort of an innate sense of confidence or through experience and it sounds like there's a degree of both if i'm reading it correctly i think so that also then feeds into all the other recorded material that you're making. Because I've noticed that sort of each record feels more and more like it's integrating that sort of sense of live band confidence into the, the sound of the material. The part of the thing that I'm getting at is it seems like the, the material is very personal to you. Mm -hmm. And getting to a point where you feel comfortable bringing other people into that both as collaborators and as an audience seems to me like a pretty bold thing to do mm. on some level. Mm -hmm. And so were there, did you ever have any like doubts or fears about your ability to do that is maybe a better way of asking the question. Definitely. I mean, I'll say like there was once, I think, I think actually maybe a lot of where it comes from is that I had been like so pleasantly surprised by the results when initially I've been like pitched the idea and have been like, Oh my God, it's going to be a mess. Like maybe some of these rap shows, for example, there've been others where I have, you know, performed in like a theater space as part of like a dance program that I thought would be very, like a really, really good fit for this project. That's been like kind of a disaster just because like they had no idea what they were getting into. And I had no idea like necessarily what I was getting into it. Was, like the reality really did not line up with the expectation. And I think we have gone through so many iterations of that now that I've kind of, we're able to modulate 
the volume, the intensity of, you know, the performance, the, the outfits, the videos, the set, you know, in terms, because like there is kind of like a wide range of like Hamisha that feels a little bit more aggressive, experimental, and an Hamisha that feels a little bit more, you know, soft and gentle. Mm-hmm. That like, like I almost kind of feel like we have a pedal that's like pretty well greased now on which we can kind of like find the knobs for those elements for each of these contexts now that we've been through enough of them. Who knows? Honestly, after the pandemic, like that pedal might be completely broken. I feel like that pedal <laughs> might be broken for a lot of us and we're yeah. going to have to like completely build it again from scratch. But I think, yeah, that like that sense of like innate confidence comes from both like always having genuinely believed in um, like the thesis of the project and what, what sounds and styles and histories it's trying to bring into conversation with one another and knowing that like that thing is like real regardless of what happens in terms of trends, in terms of algorithms in the world of music otherwise. So getting back onto the chronology, what happens after the grad school era for you? So after the grad school era, I have accumulated many songs, almost kind of similar to the Alone in India one-year vibes, but this time two years alone uh, Boston vibes, Mm -hmm. and decided that I would... So one of my main collaborators had moved to Los Angeles and decided, like, let's try and meet each of my collaborators where they are and see individually where these songs can be like stretched, pulled, done really, really in a bigger sense in whatever direction I have yet to like kind of think about. So I was, I think at that point, kind of like going there every six months or so to work on the the tracks that came after Departures. And basically, I think in that EP figured out how can we integrate all the learning that has happened in the life of this project, both Zane alone, Zane bringing in some people, Zane bringing in a band, then Zane being back alone again. Like, let's let's bring everything full circle and see how we can push it into music. And um, that's where we get Nesworth on the Beach. And that's kind of the first thing of yours that I had heard because mm-hmm. of the gig opportunity. Yes. It seemed like you got a very great response like it a lot of the the bigger press names that i've seen that have covered your music seem to come from that ep specifically Mm -hmm. that must feel good (laughs) yeah but i am curious about the sort of release strategy that you have to some extent because you've got a full-length album and then a shorter record and then an ep so it seems like you're kind of building up to another full length at least from what i can tell but since then it's obviously the pandemic comes into play and so things get more yes. complicated, but what, what were your sort of plans for following through with the material that you were working on? Uh, like at the moment or just starting with Nusra on the beach and then going forward. Yeah. I think, I think the like Nusra on the beach was, it felt like such, like it lived in its own world that like it did, probably didn't belong in a full length mm-hmm. and it really documented like a very specific time and and place that those songs came from and that what I was in. Since then, I think I have kind of waffled the way I think a lot of musicians have between feeling like, should we be releasing our work kind of like as we move along, documenting 
our cycles of working through styles, working through phases and periods of experimentation with our audiences as it goes along? Should we take advantage of something like Bandcamp Friday? Should we become fully beholden to the algorithm wanting us to push music all the time? And uh, I was hoping to release an EP right before the pandemic. Pandemic happened, put that on pause, have put out one track since then for kind of like a benefit. And yeah, that was like a song that I also was like, this probably would not go on a record of its own. And I just want to be out there with people. But there, I have, I think a lot of us at this point probably have amassed a lot of material. And like, I kind of am curious as to whether or not after the pandemic, there's gonna be like a flood of full length, which I'm kind of excited for. Cause I do feel like that's kind of the way we've always idealized music making in some ways, mm-hmm. um, just like the classical sense of doing it. Um, and I will say I have that much material now, including what was supposed to maybe be part of an EP that would be put out last year. I still am not entirely sure what I think like the form of it will look like or the release strategy for it will look like, because I think all of that's going to change in the next three to six months. But I am excited by the fact that there's that much there because it's been a while since I think I have felt like, oh, there's at least 45 minutes of music here that I would want to make a full length from the way that we had for the very first record. Do you see all of your releases as being part of the same, telling the same story or has your lyrical focus changed over time? Lyrical focus? Yeah, because it seems like, well, it's tough because so much of your music is is responding to like the sonic world that you've built too. So to describe like the story that you're telling is solely one that is happening through lyrics, I feel like is maybe not accurate to the experience of listening to your music, at least yeah. from like my ears. And admittedly, I'm an idiot and only speak one language. So I think I'm <laughs> missing a huge part of the, yeah. the experience. Uh, so I'm par- partially asking just because I'm legitimately curious and kind of don't don't know yeah um that's an interesting question like i feel like on the first record there were a lot there were a lot more just like songs and new lyrics where i was playing with like a certain moment in history and trying to see if i could interplay it onto something that was happening in my life or some kind of experience that i was working through and seeing kind of like how like if people would be able to figure out the puzzle pieces of which one is history and which one is like Zane's experience or which one, or is this totally constructed? This is totally fictional. I think since then, if you like take a look at something like Nostrad on the Beach, for example, I've like gone from like big historical idea, like big like moment in 1947 and, and, and then like a love story. I've like really, really zoomed in and gotten much, much closer where I'm still dealing with like a historical figure, somebody I'm very inspired by, Nisrat Fatih Ali Khan, this wonderful, wonderful koal. But like, I'm using like pieces of his biography and 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 pieces of like folk songs that he worked on, and revoicing those through something that is like explicitly my own, mm-hmm. like life experience, own experience of loss, own experience of 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 drifting and moving away from someone, but in a way that I think actually is, feels a little bit more lucid and that I'm like I'm, I'm, I'm less grabbing for the stars and more like looking at like a historical item right in front of me and being like oh I know exactly how this one links up to where I'm at right now and I think the sound 
perhaps this is part of part of what people responded to i think with the sound that in the same way that you're referring to like there is there is like more stories being told in just the lyrics and i think the sound there captured a lot of that too and do you see that general trend towards higher specificity continuing into the work that you're doing now or is that just something that you like what's the state of the material that it has uh, has yet to been released that you've kind of got stocked up yeah no 100 percent. i mean that's like i think that's like the gem of like really really good storytelling is like how do you get so so granular specific to the point that it's just like the realest thing you can get to you cannot divide it anymore and it's kind of at that grain stage that you've like found the universal it seems like you're balancing like the the personal the anthropological but also the there's to me and i'm interested if you see this as being any friction along this line with the entertainment aspect of it like you are performing for people mm-hmm. and you are re- releasing music for people to listen to do you ever see the sort of diaristic and anthropological elements of your music rubbing up against the entertainment side of it at all i think that actually you're keying in on exactly why those two branches i was explaining earlier have grown apart in some distance i think whereas like nusrat on the beach is using a historical figure and a little melodic element to do something very classical a love song my other impulse which is a little bit more anthropological and interested in history has branched off and done something like um this audio video piece i did with the south asian american digital archive back in 2017 it's called lavan l-a-v-a-a-n and um i basically kind of juxtaposed some of my own music with a traditional sikh wedding song and set it to home videos of a Sikh man in the 1950s who came to Oklahoma, married a white woman, had two daughters, and lived this like really, really beautiful kind of like poetic existence in 50s Oklahoma, which is like quite a few years before like the formal beginning of the civil rights era and definitely before Loving Be Virginia, which allowed for, like, like, like struck down any laws that tried to ban interracial marriage. And um, this was this is a fellowship I did with the archive, where basically we were asked to just react and respond to uh, materials in the archive. And my response to that video was, "This totally resets my imagination and timeline." of south asians in america and like immigration in general like how did this guy get here so early how did he leave this like kind of beautiful existence in oklahoma of all places so early like before the flick my med like my understanding of the civil rights era formerly beginning was so i took like hours of that video condensed it into seven minutes sequenced music to that seven minutes obviously used uh this wedding song because it came from the tradition that he was a part of and then again, I'm not sick, but I have some understanding of South Asian music. So use my own voice to extend that into seven minutes. That is probably something I feel like you would have felt maybe would have been on the very first record. Mm. Back when the first record was born in a moment where 
it wasn't thought of as entertainment. It wasn't thought of as a record. It wasn't thought of as something that was going to be played in a live show because it was just demos at that point. Whereas now that there is like a quite clear understanding of Hamesha, what Hamesha has sought out to do and what it's achieved, how that is a little bit different from, in some senses, what Zanalam, the artist, is doing. But again, both kind of like sprouted from that same seed. That makes a lot of sense to me that that would divide out that way. Mm -hmm. You mentioned that you've got some sort of conflicted feelings about exactly how to proceed with releasing music in the modern era. Uh, I noticed that over the summer you, you messed around with Patreon a bit. Mm -hmm. What drew you to that particular model? Just like I really loved seeing how sometimes just people just share like behind the scenes footage or like raw materials for this, you know, whatever projects they're working on. Um, these are demos, these are sketches, these are blueprints. And behind all these records, there are a lot of like field recordings, found sounds, like elements that go into the construction of the songs, which are quite interesting in and of themselves. I think again, when I'm working with like the archives and doing more of the work that's explicitly art or historical or anthropological work, I really like shine these elements, shine a light on these elements and let them stand on their own. Patreon seems like a pretty wonderful way that people have just been able to share that with audiences in the pandemic, you know, that you wouldn't be able to do otherwise. I still do not think I at all am well-versed in exactly the rhythms of that thing or, or, or the ways that thing can be pushed to its furthest extent, but I've enjoyed seeing what people have done with it. Speaking about, when I think about like music that has a lot of samples in its construction, like usually that is discussed usually in the, in the framework of like rights holders, Mm-hmm. You know, especially when it comes to like hip hop history, so much of the arc mm-hmm. of that genre has been defined by the law in America, copyright mm-hmm. law. Mm-hmm. Um, but it also brings up questions of like authorship to some extent. Mm-hmm. Is that something that you think about, like the origin of who is actually responsible for the music that you make to any extent? Definitely. I mean, I think uh, I thought and worked on this a lot when um, I was in grad school actually. And just thinking of how remix culture of sampling culture and hip hop in general, in some ways can help us push back on singular ideas of authorship in music. I think where musicians have been able to point to where they have come from, point to their origins, and fully like accept that they are not geniuses, that they are not alone, that they are not unique on this path that they're a part of. I think it's actually kind of like a wonderful thing to, like it's, it's like a sonic way of linking yourself to somebody before you and to a tradition of some kind. Do I think the way people get paid out or don't get paid out because of how copyrights have been sold and bundled and shipped off to weird places has to be fixed hundred percent. But that I think is like a much longer conversation of like (laughs) the music industry and, and like rights management um, at large, which is like 
clearly, clearly outdated and beholden to a very old authorial idea of artistry that I think, especially in the last few years, we've kind of debunked. There's the other interesting tension, and I'm curious if you see it this way, because I'm not an anthropologist and I didn't study anthropology at all. But my sense is that there is, from doing ethnomusicology stuff in college, is that there is a concern about a certain kind of like voyeurism that comes with the field. And obviously it's a, a bit of a different circumstance considering your own family history. But does that ever crop up as something that you need to, were you ever worried about that when making your music? Yes, hard place exactly where the differentiation comes from but I feel like there is a huge difference between music that you would call like world fusion music versus something like Hamesha or even you know forget Hamesha but like thinking of like artists like Jay Paul or MIA who have also been able to like really really I think lovingly been able to treat the material from you know the subcontinent or treat this material that they've grown up with and voice it through the voice it through, you know, their own sensibilities and their own style. I think, again, I think it's like hard to like have like a metric that separates those two things, but like, I always kind of like shit on like the seventies for like this kind of like thing, but you know, like a little bit what I'm talking about, the like copy paste of certain Indian sounds on like, prog rocky music or like or like certain certain kinds of like rock music and i think a lot of it also just has to do with like actually does it feel like it's copy pasted does it sound like this thing was forced onto another mm-hmm. um i think if you listen to artists like mi or j paul there is a little bit of a just like a deep understanding of how rhythms from this part of the world do actually interlock and align with ones that exist here or ones that exist in their own music. I think having that understanding and that ear for rhythm, for melody, for tone is what differentiates copy-paste fusion music and music that is actually able to put different parts of the world in conversation with each other in a very respectful and loving and lived way, really. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's the difference is, is lived versus Mm -hmm. like viewed you know absorb like Mm -hmm. because when i i know that we talked about this when we first met like the kind of the thing that struck me about your music was that it almost felt like this full circle moment in rock history where a lot of the like british bands that were kind of like consciously trying to take sounds from Indian music in order to appear more worldly in some way, kind of like Mm -hmm. birthed psychedelic rock, which births Mm -hmm. shoegaze. And then this reaches through the jazz master guitar, you know, Mm -hmm. it reaches you and then you complete the circle in some way. Was that ever something that you were like consciously trying to do by like connecting those strands or did it just sort of work out that way? It just sort of worked out that way. But again, I think this is where the lived sense you're talking about really comes through, which is just like the style of like chopping and looping comes from like really, really loving a certain strand of hip hop and 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 rap music in Georgia. The sense of like 
what can a jazz master do comes from loving post-rock and from loving, you know, Loveless. And then the kind of soil underneath all that was growing up within the sign of music and Kowali. Yeah, it's funny. For like from a distance, it almost looks intentional, but it seems like it's mm-hmm. just kind of this like perfect storm of elements that you could never like recreate. It just sort of mm-hmm. happened that way. Exactly. Um, so what are you what are you planning on doing going forward? Like what do you what plans do you have for 2021? Yeah, so I think as I mentioned, I have like this there's like two songs that that you know are mixed, are done that we're gonna be part of an EP. Um, there's like another full length worth of material that is in varying stages of, of, of being mixed. I did kind of like a, like a fun new year's exercise. Well, you know, I was, I was in Georgia for two, three weeks working on the runoff and obviously that was really, really exciting because we won and because the Georgia I always knew was possible and was there if not for voter suppression was able to break through and prove Stacey's thesis right. Um, but the two, three weeks also, it was actually nice to just get away from my my computer, from my laptop, from my guitar, from anything musical. So when I came back in the new year, I was able to, a little bit with like a fresh year, to listen to all that stuff that's been accumulating in the past year, year and a half. And it actually sounded like there was maybe a sequence to all of them. Mm. And an arrangement that could be the beginning of a track list for them. That's actually very exciting and feels like that has there, that there's an energy that, that is flowing through that sequence, which I wasn't able to totally feel beforehand when I was a little bit more in it or just whatever in the weird part of my brain that we all live in, in the pandemic right now. But I'm, I'm kind of, I'm just writing that energy right now and seeing, seeing where it goes. To, to, to some stage of completion. I could also say this and like maybe when the pandemic is done three months, I'm just like, you know what? This is not a record. I'm just going to put these all out as little singles or EPs and move on to the next thing. Mm-hmm. But um, for now, that that feels like, like the big idea and the idea that um, in the new year has given me some comfort and newfound motivation. When you're when you're talking about that energy of, of flow from one track to another, is that purely like a sonic thing or is there sort of a conceptual thread that you're starting to see coalesce? I would say both. Um, sonically, like it's continuing to do, it's going to continue to make like a little bit of a jump the way that like we went for departures and this was on the beach. I'm just like inviting a few more elements in and seeing like how, how much we can, we can juice for, from those. Um, but I can't, I think, conceptually to I'm trying to see how far like the idea of song can be pushed this time around. I think Nusrat got really close to being like, we're going from a 2015 that has like a lot of like interludes and flowy things that don't really have choruses or, 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 or verses to Nusrat on the beach, which was just like, we're giving it to you in the right, in that perfect, perfect crystalline pop structure. Um, to now going into something which is like within the sequence, trying to both hit that perfect crystalline pop sequence, as well as one that is like even more interlude, ambient, ambling experimentation, but actually they feel like they're threaded together. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. And in some ways, I think actually like spending a lot of time with this music has has been good for that without thinking about, okay, when are we doing the next live show? Okay, like when are we putting out the next EP? Okay, what are we doing with the music video? Because that was another thing that was happening after we played that last show in March. I was like, supposed to be doing a video in April. So those have all disappeared. <laughs> <laughs> well, in a sense, I, I do... I do really miss some of the grind of getting ready for shows and playing and whatnot, but I, I am glad to hear that you've found other ways to stay busy and other revelations that could come about with the, uh, the newfound time on your hands. You hope so. I mean, I think there's, there's probably like another part of me that's also like, if we were still playing shows and had that routine and work and cycle, perhaps this, the, 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 the sequence of the album might've actually emerged faster. Sure. Or it could be a totally different sequence, you know? Yeah, Hard exactly. to say. Well, this is great. Thank you for, uh, for coming on to the podcast. Awesome. This is Thank awesome you for having talk. me. Yeah, I'll talk to you soon. Thank you again for listening. You can listen to Humatia at humatia.bandcamp.com. If you like this episode, please give it a good rating and review. Or more importantly, share it with a friend who you think would find it interesting as well. If you'd like to share your thoughts with me directly, please email me at lamniformsband at gmail.com. Also, I should have news about a new Lamniforms album dropping soon, so check out my Bandcamp, lamniforms.bandcamp.com, or social media for up-to-date information. Until next time.